This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, lots of news happening today, and we'll get uh, a little bit of an update on the situation involving the encampment at Confederation Building a little later on the show. But first, the late Shane McGowan, who passed away today. It may not come as a surprise to many who had been following his recent illness. Uh, he was 65 years old, and he had been hospitalized for the last year or so with viral encephalitis. Uh, his wife had recently posted pictures of the singer-songwriter that made it clear that he was not long for this world. He was looking quite emaciated and uh, alarmingly um, unwell. He passed away at home just days after being released from hospital. McGowan built a hard-living, hard-drinking reputation, but was capable of penning some of the most profoundly moving and personal lyrics that spoke to people around the world. Fairy Tale of New York, of course, uh, being a classic. It was Christmas Eve Babe in the Drunk Tech, uh, and perhaps his uh, best-known example, Kevin Evans, a local musician, singer, and songwriter known for his work with Evans and Doherty and the Irish no- Rovers, had the opportunity to work with McGowan during the recording of the concert film Lee and Clancy and Friends live at the bitter end. He joins me now. Well, hello, Kevin Evans. How are you, Linda? Good, good. A sad day for uh, music lovers uh, worldwide, particularly those uh, who are fans of either punk or uh, Irish music. Shane McGowan has passed away, and I think we've been watching uh, sort of this sad saga play out over the last little while with his health troubles and that. But uh, uh, really an extraordinary uh, person and an extraordinary performer who gave a lot to uh, traditional music. And you had an opportunity to work with him, is that correct? I did, I did, uh, well, roughly, it was mostly in 2008-2009, and uh, I worked with, uh, uh, I did a movie out of the, called Live at the Bitter End with Liam Clancy and a bunch of his friends, and uh, Shane was uh, one of the guests on it, and he and I, uh, I played banjo on that one, so the banjo was pretty much the brightest instrument on the stage, when the light shone across it, so Shane was able to navigate to the stage pretty pretty easily. He used the banjo, the light shining off the banjo as, as, as pretty much a lighthouse to get back to the stage. So uh, I, I can understand that. Uh, I can remember him uh, during the 80s, uh, during that uh, If I Should Fall From Grace With God era, and uh, uh, people would buy tickets to see the Pogues live just to see, uh, you know, what was going to transpire. Yeah, I, you never really do, you know. What I mean, and, and of course, you know. I mean, all the all the shenanigans that took place really pale, uh, pale to his creativity. I mean, the man wrote some, you know, some fantastic, fantastic songs, poetry. Uh, you know, he was our generation's Brendan Bean, really. What made uh, his, you know, take on? Um you know, any number of uh, personal issues. What made it so unique? Well, I think he very much wrote in the first person. Uh, whatever, whatever he was singing about, he he put himself into that into that position. You know, I mean, he uh, he he grew up rough on the streets of London. You know, being a proud London Irish boy, and uh, you know, it reflected in his lyrics. His lyrics were very. 
they were a wonderful combination and probably unintentionally so of the present and the past and he was able to articulate it very well and and not uh, illustrated any better than through something like Fairy Tale of New York, of course, which is a radio staple these days, a, an unlikely hit, but uh, uh, a very worthwhile one. Yeah, it, it was. It almost didn't get made, that particular song. There's a, you probably know all the stories about it, but the uh, it, it it had started about six or seven times over the course of quite a, quite a long spell. And uh, it just never fell into place for either Elvis Costello when he was producing. And then it was, uh, I think it was Kirsty's uh, husband, and I'm going to forget his name now, and I shouldn't, but it, it will come to me before the end of me chatting to you. But he was producing and did produce the version that got on, got on the air, and Kirsty was actually brought in to do a demo of the female part of that song, and when Shane and everyone else heard it, they said, no, that's her, that's who's singing. And Kirsty McCall, of course, was a, she was a huge star in England and the daughter of the great songwriter Ewan McCall. Steve Lillywhite. Yes, Steve Lillywhite, there's the man. <laughs> I'm uh, 68, I have these things. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it, you, you mentioned the beacon, the banjo being the beacon up on the stage, but what was it like to work with Shane? Because he did have a reputation of being a little bit uh, un... Um, you know, you didn't know what you were going to get. Uh, so, you know, what was it like working with him? Uh, I found him, as, well, that first night, that would, would have been the first night I ever met him, which was the night of the, the filming of the concert. And uh, uh, he, he was uh, he was wonderful. I mean, he was manic and uh, a bit nuts. And uh, he certainly wasn't as uh, liquored as a lot of people thought he was. I think he was he was able to maintain his... Uh, his uh, when 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 he was drunk, half the time he wasn't as half, he wasn't as drunk as you thought he was. But he was. Don't get me wrong. He was imbibing freely. But I think he was able to uh, put a governor on it. Sort of like a, a Keith Richards, I suppose, kind of I for suppose, someone. Else. Yeah, I, I suppose he. Uh, I found it very pleasant. In fact, the the other guitar player that night was a man by the name Paul Grant and. Paul Grant and I played with Liam Clancy for, I mean, over 35 years, on and off. And uh, Paul found him, uh, just like I found him, to be a, quite a, a, a gentle soul with a, you know, he had an on-off switch. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he was able to turn, turn the switch off when he wanted to. But by God, when he turned it on, it was uh, something else. And I mean, his Irish uh, heritage and his Irish roots meant so much. And, uh, you know, he lived it. He he felt it. He um, celebrated it uh, at every occasion and brought it to the world and shared it with the world. Oh, he did. Yeah. And he was, again, uh, going back to what I said, he was very well able to like he could write a song that with with modern, modern lyrics, modern thoughts that if you weren't paying attention to the words too much, it would have sounded like it was written 200 years ago. And uh, as you say, it was very, he was very uh, articulate in his Irishness. How will he be remembered? Because I, I you know, we we see the images, we we know the stories, we we we've seen and and know this larger than life persona of this kind of a, a, a almost wreck of a man, if you if you will. But how will he be remembered? Uh, I th- I think through his art, really. 
I mean, that that's probably it. I mean, there's there's so many talented artists and songwriters uh, just in this province alone that, you know, long after we're gone, the art will remain, the music will be song, sung. And uh, uh, yes, he'll, he'll, there'll, there'll be wonderful stories of his, of the madness, but, you know, then again, I think Fairytale New York, to use an example, will be sung hundreds of years from now. And that's how people, I think, will remember Shane McGowan. And a mentor too. I don't think a lot of people understand that part of him. Oh, he was. He he uh, he was he was very kind and very considerate and always very open with his attention to younger younger musicians, both songwriters and and instrumentalists. He was uh, he loved music. He was a uh, he, he. I mean, there's 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 stories that could be told, but they're not going to be told on this radio. I can tell you that. But just things that that showed how human he really was. I understand that not a lot of the stories can be told on the radio, but when you're when you're sitting alone tonight and contemplating all of this, and uh, you know, uh, uh, probably giving a toast uh, to his memory, uh, what will come to mind? Uh, I, I think sitting in the back room the, the first night that that night we did the, the that movie there, the Live at the Bitter End, and uh, you know, your listeners should actually go out and. And it's it's available, you know. It's available on all, any of the outlets. You'll be able to find it. It's Liam Clancy and Friends live at the Bitter End from New York City. And it was uh, my my most vivid memory would, would be the first time we were sitting in the couch in the dressing room, and we were just talking like two fellas. And I'll rephrase that: we were talking like three fellas because Paul Grant was with me as well. And uh, it was just three fellas talking about what we were going to do when we got on stage. It was great and discussing the crowd and. I mean, some of the crowd that came in were 10 times worse than he ever was in his life. <laughs> I mean, woo, it was a night. <laughs> no doubt, a lot of memories, and you survived it. I did, of course, yeah, we we survived it. And then, as I say, a number of months later, uh, his manager had given me a call because of the uh, some of the fellows that were missing in action. And uh, just for, I said, so you want me to play the five-string banjo? He said, no, I, I really want you just to... Uh, beat the crap out of it is what that's 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 what we that's what the banjo does in the pokes the banjo gets the crap beat out of it and i went i'm your man <laughs> well kevin uh i really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us uh uh personally very sad for me i was always a big pokes fan a big shane mcgowan fan and uh, uh been watching you know w- with a, a certain amount of sadness over the last number of years watching uh you know how his life had diminished somewhat uh but uh, knowing the legacy that he's left is is bigger than life oh yeah and he you know he was bigger than life and he he enjoyed it i mean you know his I think his early excesses have, have, I mean, a lot of us, I I was talking to Jeff Kelly just a little while ago. You probably know Jeff. Jeff is, again, a member of the Irish Rovers, but he he was also a member of Spirit of the West. And he, with John, wrote uh, The Home for a Rest, that song. And uh, I was talking to him about it. And, like, we're all shaking our heads, wondering how he actually survived this long. Well, indeed, uh, but you know. uh, the legend is is gone now, and I know uh, all of Ireland is in uh, is in uh, mourning and at the same time celebrating his life. I really appreciate your time, Kevin. Uh, listen, you're very welcome. I would go as far as to uh, add on to your statement. I think the entire world is uh, mourning Shane McGowan tonight. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Linda. Bye bye. 
And Kevin uh, Evans, of course, a local musician, singer, and songwriter, uh, who's uh, worked with uh, Evans and Doherty, the Irish Rovers, and he also had the opportunity, of course, to um, perform with McGowan during uh, Liam Clancy and Friends' Live at the Bitter End, captured on film from 2009. And it's available out there. You can see snippets of it on uh, YouTube, and uh, you can also uh, get it through the usual uh, means. Well, when we come back... uh, Uh, A short while ago, Nate President Jerry Earle tweeted out that the union has learned that the provincial government booked a private service to provide a vaccine clinic at Confederation Building today. Jerry Earle will join us right after this. This is News Talk on VOCM. Santa Calls returns December 4th to your VOCM. And we are back. Well, I noticed this tweet from Nate President Jerry Earle just a short time ago. Um, he put out there, he says, I'm hearing that a private health care provider is doing the vaccine clinic at the Confederation Building today. This, he says, is a slap in the face to public sector workers, including those in public health. Well, Nate President Jerry Earle... One moment joins me now. All right, so Jerry Earl, what are you hearing? Linda, what I'm hearing right now is today at the Confederation Building, our right where the seat of government, uh, a clinic is being established to offer vaccines, which is not a bad thing. But what we've learned or investigating right now, the information come to me, being provided by a private uh, provider. Uh, quite ironic when public health is just down the corridor in the West Block of Confederation Building. We have a lot of public health providers, uh, like some practical nurses, registered nurses to do this. Uh, and I'm quite taken back uh, that this government, this is privatization creep. Uh, We talked about it last week, and here we go again. So, you know, do you see this as part of a trend? It absolutely is a trend. We just talked, Linda, I think a a couple of weeks ago about... uh, Manadoc, uh, $22 million going to the United States for a private company to provide online medical services. Now we see right at the seat of government confederation building a private company from what we're being told uh, providing uh, vaccination. Again, nothing wrong with vaccination. I'd certain currents people flew back or whatever. But right where public health is located uh, in the West Block there, uh, I can only imagine what public health employees that have worked through the pandemic, that have done incredible work, are thinking about what is being done today. Uh, what a way to slap their workers in the face. Uh, that's all I say. What a way to slap their workers in the face. Are you hearing from members now? We have already had members reached out saying they had heard this. Uh, we have done some inquiries, pretty confident uh, that this is occurring. Uh, and like I said, uh, our members that we represent, and I'm sure there's others that work in public health, are just as offended as we are. Uh, and again, this is another step around privatization. Uh, how much more of this is going to happen before enough is enough? Uh, and we will be doing our part. This is absolutely unacceptable to our union and the members we represent. And it should be unacceptable to Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Just while the vaccine may be free, I'd like to know what this is actually costing taxpayers in Newfoundland and Labrador. Because you can go over to Mount Pearl Square and the service, for their example, in Metro or in Grand Falls Gander, they are public services. Uh, and this is now actually a, a private entity, from my understanding. Uh, and 
totally unacceptable. And again, we're on that slippery slope of privatization and another step in that direction. Jerry Earl, I do appreciate you uh, taking the time. Thanks very much and safe travels. Greatly appreciate this, Linda. Uh, Thank you very much. And uh, we see that the uh, Registered Nurses Union has since also um, uh, chimed in on this one, expressing their dismay over the fact that uh, what appears to be a private service was um, hired to deliver a vaccine clinic at Confederation Building today. Your thoughts? Uh, You're welcome to give us a call. Well, COD NL, taking a different approach to how they recognize International Day of Persons with Disabilities, the organization would normally have joined government in signing a proclamation, but they're refraining from doing so this year due due to what they call concerning regressive actions by the current government. CODNL held its own event to recognize the day this afternoon. VOCM's Noah Shepard was there. Here's Executive Director Nancy Reed. Today I want to acknowledge International Day of Persons with Disabilities and say that we, persons with disabilities, are here in this province as a proud and important community. We represent at least 24% of the population of this country and of this province, and we are represented in every demographic, every community, and in every corner of the province. To borrow the words of a friend, disability is the universal experience. Anyone can come become a member at any point in our lives, and in fact, many of us do, self-included. Today, I celebrate the way our community is coming together to recognize our similarities, to recognize our differences, and above all, recognize the strength we have when we come together and we're not separated. That's why today I'm so encouraged and gratified to see such a community of folks in this room. In this province, The Coalition of Persons with Disabilities has for many years accepted the invitation by the Minister responsible for the status of persons with disabilities to join them in proclamation of this day. This year, we're doing things differently. Quite simply, recent actions by our government have given me reason to pause and choose to not contribute to the illusion that that enough is being done by our government to protect and to raise the status of persons with disabilities. There have been many areas of concern over recent months, and in fact over the years. However, most recent legislative developments represent regressive action that I, and I would say many of us in this room, cannot passively disregard. Specifically, the change maker for me was this fall with Bill 52. It contains amendments to the Buildings Accessibility Act. Specifically, and most troubling, uh, are the amendments which have received third reading in the House and include a new definition of persons with disabilities and a partial removal of the pre-1981 exemption. Let me give you a little detail. The changes to the Buildings Accessibility Act include a new definition for persons with disabilities. The current act uh, says it defines persons with disabilities are defined as persons with physical or sensory disabilities and further defines physical and sensory disability. The revised definition states that persons with disabilities means persons with one or more of the following. Mobility impairments, including reaching or manipulation disabilities, visual impairments, and hearing impairments. There's an obvious difference between the two definitions, and that is the removal of the word sensory in the amended uh, definition. 
Sensory is a very important part of the definition of persons with disabilities because it considers people in the neurodiversity community as well as the considerations for mental health and intellectual disabilities. Today there is a clear understanding from local, national, and international perspectives that the definition of persons with disabilities is inclusive of a much larger group than only physical and visual and hearing related disabilities. To suggest a change in a definition to include all of these identifiers is certainly supported by our community. To revise a definition of disability that removes a portion of our population is simply regressive and inexcusably inappropriate. So that's the executive director of CODNL, Nancy Reed, um, and uh, CODNL decided to um, do their own uh, proclamation for International Day of Persons with Disabilities uh, outside of government because of what they call concerning regressive actions by the current government, and they outlined those there. Well, coming up, the provincial government creates a task force with the capital city to address the needs of those living in a tent encampment on the grounds of Colonial Building. This is News Talk on VOCM. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. Well, as you know, um, we've been following this story related to the uh, tent encampment uh, at Colonial Building and the access to the bathrooms there um, that are run by the uh, City of St. John's um, halted yesterday uh, due to damage and um, other health and safety concerns. Um, And the city, uh, Mayor Danny Breen, had put the responsibility back on the shoulders of the provincial government to supply Port-a-potties. Well, we didn't get any answers on that today, but the province has announced a new task force to address the current tent city situation, as well as homelessness in the capital city as a whole and across the province. And while the premier wasn't scheduled to be at the event, he ended up showing up and leading it and was joined by a slew of other politicians with government and the city, as well as representatives with End Homelessness, St. John's, Stella's Circle, The Gathering Place, and Thrive. Well, here is Premier Andrew Fury, followed by Minister John Abbott and Mayor Danny Breen providing some of the details on the task force and what they will be tasked to do. I wanted to take this opportunity to thank uh, uh, the mayor and uh, several stakeholders who are in the back um, for coming together to address what is an important issue uh, facing people in St. John's right now. Uh, the scene at uh, outside uh, Colonial Building in Bannerman Park is certainly uh, upsetting uh, to many. And the collection of people you hear, have here in front of you are well aligned in, in trying uh, to do what is best uh, to meet the complicated needs of uh, people who are finding themselves in tents outside the Colonial Building. Uh, I know it's uh, distressing. I, I know it's a distressing image. Um, but I want to assure everybody uh, that the group of uh, people that are assembled here, whether it's government officials in the provincial government or the municipal government or in stakeholders, uh, community stakeholders, the gathering place and homelessness, Stella's Circle and Thrive, uh, we all collectively want to, uh, to work together. 
so with the evolving discourse over the last uh, 24 hours or so, I thought it was appropriate uh, to get every stakeholder together in the same room uh, to ensure that there was alignment of desire, alignment of execution, and alignment of operations. And uh, I'm pleased to say we had a, a very uh, productive uh, discussion amongst uh, the group. And uh, as a result uh, of the meeting, we will be having we'll be striking a task force uh, of uh, two government levels and a stakeholder level uh, to ensure that we have uh, appropriate uh, information sharing, uh, appropriate resources, uh, and an appropriate operational plan to help execute. Um, so with that, I will uh, turn it over to Minister Abbott and then uh, uh, to Mayor Breen, and then we'll open it up to questions uh, for everybody here in the room. Uh, good afternoon, folks. Uh, in terms then of a couple of things I want to just put out there and, and obviously for the community to, to hear, uh, as the Premier said, we've... Uh, now we'll put a task force together. It will represent uh, somebody from the province, somebody from the city, and somebody from the uh, community sector. Their task will be to stay focused on the homelessness issue here in the city and the province uh, as needed, uh, and to put in mechanisms so that we can track what is happening and make sure we got the right supports in place. For example, we'll be looking at um, a reporting mechanisms so that we will have our, our frontline folks going down uh, wherever the homeless are to record and talk to them about their needs, what services they would want, and then they we will make that available to the public. Obviously, it'll be anonymous, but we'll give the public through the media an idea of the challenges we're facing here. The other piece we want to make sure of is that we deal with any other issues that uh, will arise through those discussions through the task force and obviously they will be meeting with, with the folks uh, in the community as well as uh, the individuals we're talking about themselves. The other thing we're looking at, and uh, hopefully we can announce in the not too distant future, is that we are looking at a new facility uh, to expand uh, access for homeless so that there will be supportive housing in place for those individuals while we're looking at long-term uh, apartments and houses for them. So those are the things that we've uh, discussed. Uh, the mayor, and I know he'll speak momentarily, uh, I think we're all on side that this is something that is now overdue, and we recognize we got to act immediately, and that's what we're uh, committed to doing. So, Mayor. Thank you very much, uh, Minister Abbott and, uh, and Premier, and uh, thank you, Premier, for bringing us together today. This is uh, an important um, meeting that we had this morning uh, because we really do need to make sure that we're, we're all aligned and way that we're all, uh, we all have a, a, a very great interest uh, in what is a very complex problem. And it's not a problem that's, that's easily solved. It's one that's gonna require all of us, and as I said yesterday, uh, we can't afford to work in, in silos on this. We need to work together, and we need to make sure that each other is aware of what's going on uh, in, the, in, the, in the total picture. So uh, we're very pleased to be able to participate in the, uh, in, in the group, the coordinating group, that will take care of, uh, of guiding us through this, um, this challenging time and uh, certainly addressing some, uh, many of the problems uh, that we see arising in the future. So again, thank you, Premier, and thank you, Minister, for uh, for bringing us together today. And if I, if I may, Mayor and mm -hmm. Premier, 
One of the things we, in terms of this task force, and I think really came out in the discussion today, is there is a lot of mis misinformation in the community about what is truly happening, uh, whether it's down at the colonial building site or elsewhere around homelessness. So we feel it's incumbent upon all of us to make sure we get the right information in the hands of the community to know what is happening. I know I was getting a lot of emails, but when I responded to those, they said, oh, I didn't know that was actually happening. And there are a lot of resources. So uh, the com four community agencies that are here are on site and are working with, with the individuals. We have a harm reduction team that's on site. We have Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation on site, CSSD on site, to work and with the individuals. So that has to be a, a, a critical part of this in reporting out to the public so that we all know what is truly, in fact, happening on the on homelessness around the city and elsewhere in the, in the province. So that's uh, Minister John Abbott. Uh, you also heard with, from Mayor Danny Breen and Premier Andrew Fury on this task force that was formed today with a variety of groups, both um, on the provincial and the municipal government side of things, in addition to uh, representatives of End Homelessness, St. John's, uh, Stella Circle, The Gathering Place, and Thrive, a number of organizations that uh, work directly with people who are experiencing homelessness and are facing other very serious challenges. So uh, no word on this whole issue surrounding access to uh, bathrooms or in particular porta potties. That wasn't addressed today, but they uh, do say that they are working on a variety of ways to ensure that people who need the services uh, are getting access to it, or at least at the very least uh, being made aware that the services are available. Well, coming up, uh, it's, uh, it's an exciting piece of the province's history that uh, recently came up for auction. And the successful bill, bidder is actually calling it the rarest of the rare. What is it? Well, it was uh, presented in this um, auction recently, and you uh, heard us talk about it here on News Talk not too long ago. Um, some of the items collected over the years by Thomas Munn, uh, related to the Munn and the Munden families, two very notable uh, merchant families going back quite some time, uh, related uh, in particular to the fishery and the seal fishery here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, well, Brendan Quinn Quinlan is a local collector, and we'll hear from him when we come back after the break. This is News Talk on VOCM. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. You may recall a few weeks ago there was a uh, fairly significant auction of um, Newfoundlandia that occurred here in the St. John's area from the uh, personal effects and collection of the late Thomas Munn. Well, a local tourism operator and avid collector of uh, Newfoundland items has acquired what are believed to be the earliest known newspapers ever published in Newfoundland. Brendan Quinlan of Legend Tours calls the volume of 120 Royal Gazette papers dating between 1807 and 1809 the rarest of the rare. The volume recently came up for auction among uh, the personal effects of the late Thomas Munn. He joins me now. Well, Brendan Quinlan, uh, we saw this uh, major auction of Newfoundlandia that came up recently from the uh, the Munn collection, uh, the Munn and Munden collections, I should say. And I was down, had a look at some of these uh, amazing exhibits, and I understand that you are the lucky owner of a pretty significant one. Tell us what drew your attention, first of all, and what is the significance of it? 
Well, Linda, you know that, uh, of course, uh, for the past 20, 25 years, I've been collecting articles relative to Newfoundland and Labrador uh, from all over the world, from different websites and different auctions. I was made aware of this auction uh, recently, and um, I did some research on some of the articles that were going up on auction. And, of course, um, this particular auction uh, had numerous articles going back a couple of hundred years And, of course, amongst the articles, there was a a book, and that was um, the book of uh, papers belonged to John Ryan. Now, John Ryan uh, began his work in 1807 here in Newfoundland, and he was the one that established the uh, Royal Gazette. So the papers in the collection that I obtained are from 1807, 1808, and 1809. There are no collections held anywhere that we're aware of relative to those dates. For example, the Center for Newfoundland Studies at Memorial, uh, their earliest microfilm is 1810. Uh, The Arts and Cultural Center Library, the Newfoundland Collection, their papers go back to 1810. And these are not available as well at the Rooms Museum. The ones that were acquired in the auction uh, are from 1807, 1808, and 1809. And that would be actually, you might say, the missing papers of the Royal Gazette. And, of course, I'm, I'm very excited about it. I have somebody now employed going through page by page so we can chronicle everything in it. But it's a very rare find. And I've said to a couple of people, uh, I would liken this to um, the discovery of King's, King Tut's tomb in Egypt. Uh, what uh, King Tut's tomb is to Egypt I've been saying that this book of the Royal Gazette would be to Newfoundland because it doesn't exist anywhere else. So no doubt you've uh, already uh, looked over some of these papers. Uh, Anything stand out? Uh, You know, what's the significance there in terms of the information and and, uh, light that it sheds on those very early days? Yeah, well, it's it's very interesting. Now, I've only had a chance to glean from a few pages. So you're looking at... You're looking at 120 weeks, 1807, 1808, 1809. You're looking at two to three to four pages per week. So you're looking at close to 250 pages from 1807 to 1809. Now, one of the interesting things that I was reading, there was a proclamation by the governor warning the people not to kill birds in Newfoundland and not to eat their eggs. And it just jumped right out at me. And the idea was when boats were approaching Newfoundland in those early days, the birds were a great indication that they were getting close to land. So I thought that was just remarkable, you know, uh, banning the killing of birds and eggs. And then, of course, in all of the papers in those days, there was no such thing as Water Street and Duckworth Street. Of course, it says the lower path and it says the upper path. But just to bring it into perspective, what we're talking about, Linda, for example, the commissariat house wasn't built until 1820. 
Government House wasn't built until 1830. St. Uh, Thomas's Church was built in 1836. The colonial building between 1850 and 1960, and so on. And Again, bringing it into perspective, the papers would have been wrote 22 years before the last Beothic passed. And so if you bring it into a timeline, it's extremely, extremely interesting. I'm looking at, because uh, I've seen these papers, uh, and I'm looking at a picture I took of one of them, uh, and it shows the various merchants and the items that they have for sale, and even that uh, sheds light on um, life uh, in those very early days, uh, uh, you know, announcing that bread has just arrived from uh, Quebec, New York, Boston, um, and crackers by the keg, and uh, grain, and pork from Canada, and Ireland. It's just amazing. It's a remarkable collection because what you have here, again, relative to the about, and I'll just say 250 pages, you know, you have information there that nobody has ever seen before. Uh, that's the thing about it. Now, I'm quite familiar with all the history books that have been uh, printed like throughout our history, and I have a vast collection. But in these 250 pages, this information is not in those books. And so, you know, I'm hoping that eventually the book will go into the right hands. Now, I'll just let it go with that. But I do think it's worth worth, uh, preservation in light of uh, the mandate of the Center for Newfoundland Studies to collect everything uh, published relative to uh, Newfoundland. So you're hoping that this will be, you know, um, digitized in any way? Oh, I think it will be. I yeah, absolutely. I mean, it and it'd be, you know, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's a must. Because, again, this is like uh, big pieces of the puzzle of our history that are missing, that uh, by bringing this together in the chronology, again, 1807, 1808, and 1809, uh, there'd be a lot of, lot of interesting things. And it's not only to do with St. John's, it's to do with all parts of Newfoundland, what's in that book. Well, Brendan, congratulations uh, on this amazing purchase. And uh, we hope that uh, we'll be seeing, I guess, some of the details surrounding this uh, available to the public uh, sometime in the not-too-distant future. Well, I I look forward to um, being a help to anybody relative to... uh, to the book and uh, I just think it's 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 fascinating it's uh, and again I've been collecting for about 25 years and this would be the rarest of the rare because John Ryan was commissioned these would be the first papers printed in Newfoundland there's nothing precedes these papers so we are familiar with the telegram, uh, 1879 and so on. But now we're going back to 1807. And, of course, these are the very first papers ever printed on the island. That's how it goes. Brendan Quinlan, uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda, and you have a great day. Yeah, and I've seen that that volume of those um, very early papers of the Royal Gazette, uh, dated between 1807 and 1809, not known to have existed anywhere else. Uh, There are no collections, you know, in the vast archives in and around Newfoundland and Labrador that contain these papers. So they contain some information that's 
to now might have been lost if that uh, volume had been picked up and recognized for what it, what it is. I Very e interesting. I echo your sentiments, though, about the importance of it being uh, digitized. I wouldn't want to be the person that actually has to touch the paper and actually do something with it. I think that's too much um, pressure. <laughs> to me, it could fall apart. It's actually a remarkably good shape condition yeah, yeah. Uh, because it was held in this volume it like right. it looks like a big you know those big old books they're like really tall they're like a foot and a half tall you know those big volumes very sturdy yeah. and it's you know it's got this very solid kind of feel about it and so the the papers have been protected in that and obviously taken good care of it hasn't been just you know uh, thrown in a coffee marks over there. Well, <laughs> actually, coffee. it's funny you mentioned that the one picture I took does have a big coffee really? stain on the top of it. <laughs> I guess, you know, if you're reading your daily paper, you know, you to put your cup down and those papers were big, you know, the big yeah. broadsheets, you know. So uh, anyway, yeah, it does happen to have a big coffee stain on it. But yeah, in remarkably good shape and very legible and that sort of thing. Now you got to handle it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. I think uh, usually archivists and that know how because the oils off your finger can yeah. can cause some problems for uh, those kinds of materials. But yeah, you're very interesting indeed. So any history nerds out there, uh, with any luck, uh, those will be digitized at some point. And as Brendan Quinlan says, he's hoping at some point that it will get into the history right hands. Too. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Well, on the international front, and we've been watching this, of course, closely since October the 7th, uh, Hamas has released two Israeli women from captivity as the truths in Gaza endured another day. The planned exchange of more hostages for prisoners comes during a one-day extension of the ceasefire, which had been extended for two days, which had been four days prior to that. So it's now into its seventh day. Any further renewal of the deal that has enabled dozens of hostages and prisoners to be released could prove more daunting, since Hamas is expected to set a higher price for many of the remaining captives. International pressure has mounted for the truce to continue as long as possible after weeks of Israeli bombardment following the deadly October 7th attack by Hamas that provoked the war. Israel's attacks have killed thousands in Gaza. And uh, while hopes remain that this truce uh, will ex be extended or uh, could be extended, um, Israel has vowed that once uh, the truce ends, it's going to continue its work to, as it puts it, um, eradicate and eliminate Hamas, unless Hamas... Um, you know, uh, uh, surrenders beforehand. So uh, there is a very strong possibility that um, this could continue. Uh, I guess the world is watching uh, with bated breath. And uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the allegations of a toxic workplace, culture, harassment and sexual assault at Canada's spy agency, CSIS, are devastating and absolutely unacceptable. A group of Canadian security intelligence service officers raising allegations at the B.C. office, launching separate lawsuits against the federal government. Two women say they couldn't go to police in part because of a law against identifying themselves or others as covert officers. Very 
you know, anybody involved in spy agencies and the like, uh, their um, identities have to be kept secret. But uh, Trudeau says everyone in every workplace, no matter how secret the work they are doing, must be protected. So no doubt we'll be hearing more about that in the coming days. Well, that's it for us for today. Uh, Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow. Uh, Lots of news. We'll be breaking down all of the things that have been uh, happening today, including a tour of the uh, new mental health and addictions facility on uh, Prince Philip Parkway. Uh, Richard Duggan was at that. Uh, what CODNL is saying, uh, what uh, this task force is all about when it comes to homelessness in Newfoundland and Labrador. All those details tomorrow morning uh, during our VOCM morning show and throughout the day in VOCM News and on VOCM.com. Thanks for listening, everyone.